Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Okay, there's an international story that's developing here. And it involves this country. It involves Germany. And it involves Russia. And it involves a gas turbine. And uh, the story is going to become much bigger. It's just taking form now. We're joined by the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Alexandra Khachi. Ms. Khachi, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. In your words, please explain the situation that involves Germany, Canada, Russia, and um, the gas turbine and your, your uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress message to the prime minister of this country. Uh, thank you very much, Roy. Uh, so the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress has been increasingly concerned about reports that the government of Canada is considering waiving sanctions against Gazprom, the Russian energy company, and Nord Stream 1, uh, the gas transit line that it owns. Uh, there is uh, currently in Canada a turbine manufactured by Siemens, uh, which is here for service. And, of course, once Gazprom was sanctioned, uh, that turbine itself is sanctioned. The Germans have appealed to Canada to waive the sanctions on that gas turbine in order to return it to Russia. Russia has been blackmailing, in effect, Germany uh, by threatening to cut off gas supplies. At first, uh, they suggested that there were technical reasons that the gas line couldn't maintain proper flow without that turbine, but it is now common ground that this is a deliberate ploy by Russia to really exploit the weak link in the Western coalition because of Germany's uh, excessive reliance on Russian gas. So the, the concern for the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, and for me as a Canadian, is that our government is considering waiving the very sanctions that were imposed to hobble the Russian war machine uh, by releasing this turbine, which uh, just allows uh, the Russian gas to keep flowing and flowing. So the understanding as well, at least the rumor is, that I've been reading and hearing, is that Mr. Trudeau has, and it's a rumor at this point, that Mr. Trudeau has in fact made up his mind and he will release this gas turbine from uh, from sanctions from sanction control is that what you're hearing as well uh well that's what we're hearing from media reports uh of course from uh, unidentified sources but that's why we want to be out ahead of the story and thank you for for hosting us roy uh in order to make canadians aware that this is what the government is planning and we are fairly certain that the Canadian public will be outraged by this decision should it be taken. When we watch and when we see what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, the war crimes that are being committed on a daily basis, there's no excuse, there's no rational acceptable reason for the release of this turbine to, uh, and if, if the story is it's being released to Germany, in fact it's being released to Russia, and it doesn't take um, the uh, the uh, rocket scientist we talk about all the time. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand what Mr. Putin's doing. He's trying to find a weak link in the sanctions, exploit that weak link, 
maybe with cooperation from, these are my words, cooperation from Germany, um, which has a significant dependence on Russia. And once he finds a weak link, the next dominoes may not be so difficult to, to drop. So this is critically important, isn't it? It is. And this is the, the slippery slope that we all worry about. And this is not the first time that Russia has uh, tested Western resolve since the uh, invasion began in February. In April, uh, Russia demanded that EU countries that were buying gas from Russia pay in Russian rubles. And this was uh, considered uh, by uh, by many countries in the EU, EU to be a violation of the very sanctions that we're talking about. And of course, brave countries like Poland, Bulgaria, and Finland refused to do so. Their gas supply was cut off, and they took it on the nose, and they sought other alternatives. Unlike Germany, which is uh, responding to the pressure of big business in Germany, uh, to resume uh, the relationship with Russia. And of course, that has been a policy that Germany has been pursuing for five decades. But the irony is that I believe there are alternatives, aside from other countries that should band together to support Germany now in its hour of need. This whole ploy may be unsuccessful or unnecessary, it's our information, and uh, I would ask the Canadian government for their response on this, is that in the coming weeks, and certainly before the winter, Russian storage facilities will be full to the maximum. At that point, the Russians will have four options. They can burn the surplus, they can drink it, they can stop production, and of course that would require months and months of preparation to restart it, or they can resume the gas flow and sell the gas to the EU, as has, they have been doing for the last couple of years. And so this whole uh, waiver of sanctions may be completely unnecessary and will send the wrong message to, to Russia. I can just hear Lavrov chuckling in Moscow now. Yeah, there's no way the words sanctions and waivers should appear in the same sentence when it comes to Russia and what it's doing in Ukraine. Remind us, please, what the people of Ukraine are experiencing. What, the, what are they going through today, right now? Well, I think, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, media keeps us all painfully aware of what is happening in Ukraine. I just returned from there uh, a few weeks ago. I visited Bucha and Irpin, which were the scenes of the most horrific war crimes that Europe has experienced since World War II. The, uh, the rape, the pillaging, the plundering, the indiscriminate bombing, deliberate bombing of infrastructure, schools, hospitals, uh, the devastation in eastern Ukraine is just horrific. And we, we hear reports of continued bombing and uh, while we hear that Western weaponry is starting to arrive in Ukraine, Ukraine's uh, armed forces are losing one to 200 soldiers daily, and civilian lives are being sacrificed every day, including almost 400 children. It's a horrible, horrible reality. Patrick Brown joins us on The Roy Green Show. Patrick, in your words, what has happened to you in the past week, do you think you're the victim of a coordinated effort to remove you 
from the party leadership contest. Well, Roy, first of all, it's great to once again be on your show. Uh, and yes, I'm I'm disappointed. Uh, clearly, uh, the party establishment uh, uh, made a choice that they were worried um, about uh, my campaign. And I challenged a lot of the traditional positions of, of the Conservative uh, Party, and that worried some. But what's disappointing is on the basis of uh, a flimsy reason, they have not just disqualified my candidacy, but the 150,000-plus Canadians that joined my campaign to build this big tent Conservative Party that I envisioned. And, and Roy, you know, I signed up people from non-traditional um, Conservative backgrounds, from diverse cultural communities, from labour organisations, everything from construction union workers and firefighters, uh, you know, a very similar um, alliance of Conservatives that we've seen as, as, as part of the successful uh, provincial Conservative re-election, and so you know it's disappointing that their voice is being taken away. So uh, you know the story; you've commented on it, but let me just raise it. Debbie Jodwan, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, described as a former regional organizer for your campaign in a media statement, suggested you arranged for her to work on your campaign through a third-party company. Am I understanding what she said correctly? So. Um, Debbie Jodouin was working um, on Leona Asilev's uh, campaign um, when she was running for leader of the party. In May, when Leona dropped out, she uh, came to me uh, looking for a job. Um, we didn't have a job on the campaign, and so I recommended her um, for a job elsewhere. Um, you know, she did volunteer some time on my campaign, um, and it's been spun um, otherwise, and well, let me say, quite often you have people with other obligations that volunteer on campaigns. Um, but you know, we we've you know we wanted to know what the story was about. The party wouldn't tell us the name. We had to learn the name Debbie Jodouin through through the media. We compensated the company that she worked for out of an abundance of caution to make sure that there can be no um, no uh, perception that it was. Uh, uh, a corporate uh, donation because you're not supposed to volunteer for campaigns on on work time. But what I would say is that you know this is a, a very flimsy reason to disqualify um, a leadership campaign that had a real shot at winning. Um, the reality is we signed up the most members in the weakest ridings in the country and had a very strong path to victory. Um, and so this is just this is wrong. This is not democracy. Let the members decide. Don't be, it shouldn't be. You know, a few four people in Ottawa making that decision. The leadership election organizing committee chair Ian Brody says that he and the party tried to bring you into compliance with federal election law as well as the party's leadership rules, and they tried that for days, but it didn't work. Is that not true? It's not true. It, it, the reality is they wouldn't tell us the name of the individual or the company that they um, were referring to. We had 1,800 volunteers on our campaign. If they had told us the name, we would have immediately attended to it and reconciled it. They are looking for any justification to knock us out because I'm not the party um, establishment uh, choice, Roy, and I challenge the party establishment's uh, um, record on, on, on many issues. And so you know, I may not have been the most popular choice in party headquarters, but party headquarters needs to change. The party establishment needs to evolve the same old, same old approach has, ha- has led them to election loss after election loss. You know, leaderships are an opportunity to shake things up and let the members decide, and not a few people in Ottawa. So yes or no, Patrick, you're 
Are you in non-compliance with federal election law? Yes or no? Uh, no, we, we, we are in compliance, and we had uh, one of the top lawyers in Canada, Marie Hennon, review it. She wrote the party a letter stating emphatically that we are compliant, um, and so and it, the party had no basis for, for their disqualification. Um, and we're supposed to be a democracy. The Conservative Party of Canada is supposed to have vigorous leadership contests where we can challenge each other. We shouldn't allow shortcuts to lead to coronations. If they wanted a pure poly of coronation, um, then they should have told us three months ago, um, not, not have this, this circus of events that we've seen over the last week. Okay, so you're talking to me now, and you're going to appeal the decision. Uh, what can you share I don't know how much you can share, but what can you share about your appeal? Well, you know, I'll leave details of the appeal or any potential appeal um, to uh, the lawyers. What I would say is that there was no basis for uh, a disqualification. Uh, and, you know, we know where this is coming from. You know, this was the party establishment and the Pierre Polyev campaign um, worried um, about their capacity to win this. Um, you know, we had really, if you look at what happened around the country, you know, Jean Charest did very well in Quebec. He wanted nothing to do uh, with Pierre Polyev's campaign. Uh, Leslie Lewis has told uh, her supporters not to vote for Pierre Second, uh, and we dominated every suburban and urban uh, hub in the country. And so Pierre's path to victory was tenuous. And I, I know I made people in the party feel uncomfortable when I challenged Pierre on some of his positions, but if he can't take uh, a fellow conservative challenging him on his positions, how is he going to handle this on a, on a national level? If he can't give me a response on his Bitcoin policy or on um, his association... Yeah, but this, this, with, is about, yeah. this is about you, Patrick. So the, you're, you're telling me, you're telling my listeners across the network, that the Conservative Party is actually disingenuous. They're lying about why they, or the rationale for, dis, for dismissing you is, is not true. And you said that uh, uh, Mr. Brody, who says that he and the party tried to bring you into compliance with federal election law, as well as the party's leadership rules for days, you're saying that's just not true. It's absolutely not true. And it's one of the reasons why when they had the vote of the leadership election committee, it was a split decision. You know, I, I certainly yeah, had members of, LEOC, I, members of LEOC call me. Um, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't okay. believe um, that... Uh, this was happening with no details. Patrick, what do you say to a group of city councillors in Brampton challenging your work as mayor of the city? So, um, Roy, uh, you're in Hamilton, aren't you? Well, I'm physically in Hamilton, but the program yeah, yeah. the program airs from well, Toronto so, uh, to Vancouver. Uh, uh, so I'm going to give you an example. You know, Hamilton City Council has uh, intense debates, and we have two factions in our city council, um, and I'm proud to support one of those factions that I believe is on the right side of the issues, um, the side of, of council that has pushed um, against the 413 for higher taxes, um, for values that I believe are inconsistent with the success of the city, uh, I have spoken against. Okay. And, uh, um, and, and they're wrong, and, uh, um, but uh, that should be no surprise that you have, that you have uh, um, different factions in municipal government that's common everywhere in the country. The Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission is again demanding, by way of subpoena, it's not the first time, that Ottawa turn over any and all documents relating to the murders of 22 people on the 18th of April, 2020. The commission also wants to know 
why any documentation was withheld at all, since it was all requested in 2020. Let me ask the studio to put my guests up on the phone, please. Also, the families of murder victims during the mass shootings are questioning whether they'll continue to engage and uh, cooperate with the inquiry into the murders because key witnesses are being shielded from cross-examination. A lot is taking place. We have back with us Mr. Scott McLeod, his brother Sean, and his brother's partner Alana Jenkins were among Wortman's 22 victims. How are you, Scott? Not too bad at all, thank you. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. I wish the search situation were somewhat different or significantly different, but there's one way to get the situation moving, and that's to shine a light on it. I agree, 100%. Paul Polango, investigative reporter. His book is 22 Murders, which chronicles the events and points to inconsistencies in the RCMP's actions and explanations. And Mr. Polango continues to release information and stories which are appearing on the Frank Magazine website. How are you, Paul? Fine. Glad to be back on another Saturday with you, Roy. I'm starting to be uh, starting to be an event here. We need to sit down and have some beers one day. Uh, we're we're a little far apart at the moment. I'm actually in Moncton, uh, and I actually saw Scott today at Chapters where I was doing a book sign. Yeah, good. So, look, uh, let me start with you, Paul. The Mass Casualty Commission sends another subpoena to the RCMP and the federal government demanding all documents relating to the investigation. And they want answers why key pages of documentation was withheld for months. Would you start with that, please, Paul, and explain where we are and what the current situation is per your investigation? Well, the situation is that it's quite clear that the Mass Casualty Commission is not addressing the criminal activities of criminal associations of Gabriel Wortman, the shooter, in the years prior to the um, uh, massacres. And one of the reasons we, we, we believe and we've been told by sources is that if you go into that area, the RCMP will have to reveal what it was doing and not doing. And the, the strong possibility that Wortman or someone around him was a police informant or agent in the days and the weeks, months leading up to the massacres. And so the RCMP has gone out of its way, and the government of Canada, which is, is sort of interjected itself in this, has gone out of its way to not to obscure things, not release everything. And one of the things that's missing in this latest request is not only are they asking for documents and what you know that they haven't received, but there's no question about the RCMP destroying documents. We have that documented in the book. I have the the memorandum uh, showing the front the RCMP memorandum uh, about a moratorium on the destruction of evidence in this case, and the, the the evidence is, and it's quite clear that the RCMP was destroying evidence in the summer of 2020 and the fall of 2020 and the months afterwards. So, what were they destroying, and why were they destroying it? Scott, when you hear Paul, and uh, when you think about, and you're you're much closer to this than most anyone in this country, it's affected you and affects you daily, that the Mass Casualty Commission is demanding by subpoena that uh, the federal government, the RCMP, turn over all documents relating to the murders of 22 people, including your brother and his life partner. 
what's what does it what does it do to you to 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 hear this kind of to and fro, back and forth. We need this. We want that. Why are you withholding this? Keeping in mind that at the very beginning, there wasn't even going to be an inquiry, a public inquiry. It wasn't even on the agenda at the very beginning. How does this affect you? Well, trying to, you know, from the beginning, I've just, information is all I've ever been after. And until I met Paul, I mean, I was only getting the dribs and drabs that were coming out. And once they started with this, I mean, I've heard of them destroying evidence. They come back to my parents wanting more DNA samples from my parents. And it's like, I, we asked them why we get five or six different stories between Constable Bent and Superintendent Campbell. Uh, and none of the stories are the same. Like, just if, if you've got information, they, they told me in the beginning, it's, well, it's not a criminal investigation, all right, then why are you withholding everything and and not not bringing it forward? If it's not a criminal investigation, then you're not. There's nothing you should be protecting. So bring it out. But now they're just, you know, it it's like the old saying goes: pulling teeth from a hand, trying to get information from anybody because nobody wants to give anything up or admit to anything. Yeah, you know, when we, we think about uh, Superintendent Campbell, he, of course, made headlines across the country when uh, his notes and his memory and his recollection of a, a meeting, phone meeting with the commissioner of the RCMP was that um, the uh, the commissioner wanted to have the information about the weapons that Wardman used released publicly so it would help the liberals with their gun ban legislation Bill Blair, then the public safety minister, said he had no such conversations with the uh, with the commissioner, and uh, the same is coming out of the PMO. Scott, do you believe them? It's hard to know what to believe anymore because everybody's stories change. Everybody points a finger at somebody else. Um, you know what what story is the the whole truth? What story is uh, giving it a different spin? What story is leaving out a little piece of key information so that it doesn't sound bad on somebody. If they're, if they're trying to use this as a, a platform for any government agenda, it's it's a disgusting display because this is not an agenda for political issues. This is a this is a an investigative thing where families and friends and people in general just are just trying to get the actual information to see what what happened here and why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this isn't um, this isn't theoretical for you and the families. These are your family members. These are your loved ones who were murdered, and you want information. And now you're at the point where, as a group, you're, you're thinking as families, you may not cooperate with the inquiry any further. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, you, like just this week coming up, uh, Lisa Banfield will be taking the stand. And when they announced that, they also announced the fact that Lisa Banfield would not be cross-examined. Uh, the, the family lawyers could submit questions that only the commission lawyers would be able to ask. And that will only be questions that they approve. And like talking with my lawyer, I can only, add, I can only submit questions to my lawyer that pertain to me and specific incident. Like... I'm sitting here looking at the whole picture, 
I can't submit stuff on anything else. I got to do just that. But I mean, I've got questions on the whole thing because it's all one big piece. So why why can't we get the information? She's as big a part of this as anything. She was one of the last couple of people that spent the day with her, uh, with him, the day that this all started. And from everything that's come out, she doesn't look like she's a victim because it, just the way it's come out, she was unscathed coming out of the woods after supposedly spending a whole night in the woods with no outer gear on for the for the weather. She'd have died from hypothermia long before she ever come out of the woods. So, I mean, let, let us speak, let her speak, let us ask questions. You should be allowed to ask yeah. questions. That should be just Absolutely. fundamental. And Lisa Banfield was uh, Wartman's partner. Paul, right now, so, we, you know, the subpoenas have been sent by the Mass Casualty Commission. Right now, we don't know if Ottawa is withholding information or documentation from this commission. We don't know how much they might be withholding. What what do we need to know and what do you suspect we don't know? Well, what we don't know is about the criminal behavior. And that's what I focused on in the last couple of days, in the last three articles I wrote in Frank this week, like 7,000 words worth. And what I did was uh, I eventually contacted, and this shows you how it works and, and how the government's trying to shape a narrative, like by pounding a square peg into a diminishing round hole. They don't want anyone associated with Wortman's criminal life coming forward. And I found Rob Doucette, who was allegedly his carpenter, but I've showed over a series of three stories that Doucette was aware of all the criminality, a lot of the criminality, the smuggling of sniper weapons across, a sniper gun across uh, uh, the border, uh, the the possession of nail grenades, and that special compartments were built for the nail grenades, which could only usually be used by bikers. I showed the, the, the relationships that Doucette had and his, his, his uh, other relationships that, that really challenged the Lisa Banfield story or the narrative that they had this white picket fence life that suddenly went bad, that she was obviously there when all of this criminality was going on. And in the final story yesterday or the day before, I was able to show that um, Rob Doucette did a, uh, a tape of an unusual conversation in 2004 where the police showed up, RCMP showed up, and were questioning Wortman about a murdered man and, and, and his, the last time he saw this murdered man, Kevin Petrie. So he was a person of interest in 2004 in the murder, but this has never come out from the inquiry, and they've avoided this kind of thing. And the interesting thing about Petrie, since I've written the article, I've learned more about him and his close relationship to the Hells Angels and his his relationship to Wortman, so that Lisa Banfield had to know all of this stuff as well, And but she's not going to be allowed to be questioned. So that tells you in a nutshell the problem with this inquiry and the federal government approach to trying to suppress information. Yeah. Paul, when you have the RCMP questioning themselves, you've got Superintendent Campbell um, talking about that, or releasing notes about that meeting with... Uh, with the commissioner, in which she was, well, she's apologized for her behavior in that meeting. And there are questions about uh, really whether the federal liberals 
pushed the commissioner to provide information on the guns that Wartman used in order to uh, make it a little easier for them or more palatable for them with Canadians to pass their uh, gun possession, firearms possession legislation. When you have the RCMP turning on the RCMP and the federal government not answering questions, and I spoke with Tim Mills as well, who was the the uh, tactical team um, lead in, on that night, and uh, Mr. Mills uh, spoke really at length about how dissatisfied and disturbed he is about the way his team was treated by senior officers. It looks like there are a lot of issues going on at the top, Paul, that, uh, that they don't want to filter down. Am I, am I, am I on to something here? No, you're absolutely onto it. I mean, there was an article I noticed this morning that was uh, appeared a couple of days ago in the Hamilton Spectator and other papers from Mr. Kennedy, who's a former uh, RCMP uh, complaints commissioner. And he says he hits the nail right on the head. The issue with the RCMP, be it sexism, the performance here, all the harassment and bullying, it's underperformance, et cetera, is the, the problem is the structure of the force. The force is, is poorly structured. It's outlived its usefulness, and, uh, but it has become a tool of the federal government, and it's politicized. It's all the things a police force should not be in a, in a democratic country. So the, the government and, you know, the government, not the federal and the provincial level, have to deal with this and it's such a big thing to deal with that they're doing everything they can to avoid dealing with it even in even in the face of this egregious behavior by the force scott what do you want to add to this well as far as the the senior structure goes um i i think it's just too many people trying to be the one in charge and when something does go wrong then you're seeing everybody point a finger at somebody else. So everybody wants the responsibility, but no one wants to be responsible. And, you know, when they start telling people this person was in charge and this person was in charge, and you, it's, it's confusion amongst everybody. If you've got four different staff sergeants that are sitting running a show, well, which staff sergeant are you supposed to be listening to? When you get up into the higher tiers of the people that don't even work out of the, the local area that, you know, they're never boots on the ground, uh, sit back and do your political stuff the way it should be done. Um, talking with uh, Chief McNeil from the Toronto Police Department, I mean, the structure works so much better. Dave McNeil runs the show. Dave doesn't have to give directions to this constable and that constable. He's got his supervisors that are on the road, his, his corporals and sergeants, that can do their job if they need to go up. There's a, there's a small chain of command to go up instead of having all these different people. Um, they, they just There's too many people yeah. sitting in these high-power positions. $20 billion, the agreement between First Nations and Ottawa to compensate First Nations children and families harmed by chronic underfunding of child welfare on reserves. So that $20 billion represents, well, let's ask our guest what it represents. And we also want to talk to our guest about other issues which remain unresolved in order to achieve reconciliation. And I do believe that a significant number of people really care about reconciliation 
But how well are we doing at it? And one of the issues that always comes to mind, and I'll see emails from listeners immediately, and they'll say, well, what about the issue of clean drinking water? I think everybody's invested in this right across this country. Clean drinking water for First Nations. It's just not a fact for far too many. And, uh, you know, word salad is issued by politicians and Nothing much gets done. It has to happen. Chief Cadmus DeLorme of Cowess's First Nations in Saskatchewan uh, always is very generous with his time for us. Uh, Chief, thank you very much. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Roy. I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Now, let me ask you about this, um, the agreement with the uh, federal government, because you had already, as a First Nation in Saskatchewan, had uh, reached an agreement with the provincial and federal government about children's well-being at your First Nation, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct, Roy. Tell us about that, please. Thank you. Uh, Roy, I'm going to use an analogy of a vehicle, just to clarify for the listeners and yourself. Think of a vehicle. What's in the vehicle right now? How much gas is in the tank? Are we overflowing? The the agreement Cowess' First Nation uh, signed, uh, the coordination agreement, uh, empowering the Cowess' child welfare law, we call neo-pematismal, acting free means striving for a better life. That's in the vehicle. So that's, we... We gave Canada and the provinces exactly the resources we needed to get to parity with our children. So think of it as the headlight. The CHRT, which we're about to talk about in a a little bit, is the road behind us and the inequality that happened to date. Yeah, and it was major. I mean, generational. We've talked about the residential schools, and I think we should find a new name for those places. But uh, so, so there's a $20 billion agreement between First Nations and Ottawa. Compensation for First Nations children and families who are harmed by the chronic underfunding of child welfare on, on reserves. Um, Chief Delorme, the initial number was $40 billion. Are you Are you satisfied with this? Is this a good agreement? Roy, it's hard to put numbers to compensation. You know, like, like the investment yeah, that forty billion will be coming uh, will make an impact, and and the the reason that we are at this case, at this moment with the CHRT, um, this 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 case is it's consistent with the Canadian mm-hmm. Human Rights Act that every citizen in this country um, seeks from from this beautiful country, G seven country, Canada, we call it, but ultimately it's. Canada has uh, seized its discrimination against First Nation children. And, and we got to understand before we even, you know, get the numbers, are they impactful? Why is Canada, um, you know, held accountable here? The First Nations never gave up jurisdiction of our children in care, but because of colonization, because of the Canadian Constitution, that delegated powers are given to federal and provincial and territorial jurisdiction. There's nothing in there respecting that First Nations also have jurisdiction. So the inequality that we see in child welfare today in every provincial budget, in incarceration and in the amount of Indigenous population is for the fact that Canada asserted jurisdiction but lacked the right resources which put Indigenous people in the state that uh, we are in today. We're not asking for pity. We're not asking for anybody to feel sorry for us. But this $40 billion uh, Roy will be, you know, split between compensation, which is right for children in care that have uh, aged out, and we are compensating in, in, um, you know, investing in them personally, but also 20 billion to help 
child welfare reform because children in care will continue. But the thing that's about to change is whose hand is now on the steering wheel in the car, who's calling the tune, and is the gas tank filled? Yeah, very true. Uh, So if I understand this correctly, federal government does pay for child welfare on reserves, but matches the spending of provincial governments if children are placed in foster care. Now, that's about as unfair as you can get, um, from my perspective. But more than 50% of children under 15 and in foster care are indigenous. Chief DeLorme, speak to that. And the fact that a Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2016 ruled that Ottawa had discriminated against First Nations children, which Mr. Trudeau's government opposed, by the way, a court ruled against the federal government, and that's when the tribunal ordered the federal government to pay the $40,000 in compensation to each child who was removed from families without cause since 2006. And it would have been more, except for the Human Rights Tribunal, the maximum they can issue is a $40,000 in compensation. Would you speak to that, please? Uh, yes, Roy. Uh, this case has been going on since the 90s, so it's not just the current government, but every government has... Um, you know, done what they could as a government. You know, what, what we ask of our government today is good government, uh, ju- justice, and, and freedom for all. And that's really tough to um, uh, address when there's inequality between First Nations people. And what I mean by that, Roy, is um, Canada, uh, you know, seems to want to settle. But the number that they feel and the number that they're coming up with in their meetings, which I'm not in that room, so I can't speak to what they're saying in these rooms, doesn't equal with what uh, Cindy Blackstock and the uh, First Nation Child and uh, Family Caring Society of Canada, who is a applicant in in this court case, and the Assembly of First Nations, who represents the 630 rights holders as an advocacy. It's not a government. AFN is an advocacy. So that was the challenge. And so that's why it had to go uh, to the tribunal is um, Canada's numbers uh, weren't equaling to what uh, Cindy Blackstock and the Canadian Society of Canada's First Nations Child and Family Canadian Society of Canada's and then the AFN as well. So um, last week, uh, I'm very happy to share that all three have come to a conclusion on where this $20 billion should go, which is good, Roy, for, for all of Canada, because when First Nations are invested in for healing and prosperity, all of Canada succeeds. Yeah. So now we're just uh, now have to pass it back to the tribunal, uh, which we're hopeful that they will approve, and we can move on to the next chapter of standing beside First Nations people in this country as they heal. Chief Delorme, you're a, you're a young First Nations leader, and you're highly respected. And I just wonder sometimes, how challenging is it for First Nations leaders to deal with in-place governments? There may be more the in-place bureaucracies. You're dealing with people who, and I'm not being judgmental here, I'm just, this is a fact. You're dealing with people who've never spent, most of them have never spent 24 hours in a First Nation. So how are they going to understand what the issues are for First Nations in Canada? I mean, you do the best you can, and and it's been going on, I think, with more energy in the last couple of years than for some previous time. But how how difficult is it to, to communicate with governments that have no idea what life is like on a First Nation? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Roy, I, I know I only got a brief time here, so I'm going to try to sum it up with some real fast words. And uh, please, if you have to stop me, I'm going to be about two minutes in my response here. The, the first um, is hope. That, that's something all society in this country drives on is hope. Hope for the future, hope for our children and children yet unborn. The reality is, is that, you know, I'm going to bring in the, the unmarked graves of residential school in the last, uh, uh, since Kamloops, Maryville, and many others. There's two things that this country has learned in how First Nation leadership uh, has our challenges and opportunities. For non-Indigenous people, the unmarked graves, uh, the shield is down. Many are admitting, I don't know much about the truth between Indigenous people and Canada. Like, this is a, this, that's a fact of the challenge leadership play in this country is we uh, have been advocating for decades, and it is now at this moment that we feel that Canada is now beside us. Like, that's huge. For First Nation leadership, like, this is validation of the pain, frustration, anger, tiredness. I, I, I love being a chief, uh, Roy, and uh, there's many out there just like myself, and, and I'm learning from them. You know, my last point to try to bring to the conversation is Canada and the provinces and the territories have to adjust their attitude towards Indigenous people. Uh, I'm going to use a constitution number here, and it's in, the, in our constitution, Canada, section 9124. It states Indians and Indian lands. For the first 170 years of this country, we have been told that on-reserve is different than off-the-reserve. And that is a huge challenge because as a chief, I'm trying to unite my people. I'm trying to unite off and on. But because Canada and the provinces try and divide us between on and off, Section 9124 does not say on versus off. It says Indians and Indian land. So the governments have to adjust their attitude. And Indigenous people, I'm going to look in the mirror as well, Roy. We as well, too, have to get our house in order, good governance so that we could adjust our attitude. And I tell you, Roy, when that day comes when we're all sitting at the table, this country will prosper when all of us better understand uh, that we are respected governments amongst each other, Indigenous people, we're rights holders, we're not shareholders, we're not stakeholders in this country. That's not a bad thing. Once we get there, Roy, I do believe that this country will be more economically strong, more socially impact strong, and together I feel we could get there. I've always wanted to ask you this question, because I think First Nations youth, on a percentage basis, um, it's it's more young people, First Nations people, young people under twenty five than on a percentage basis in any other um, group uh, in in this country. I'm not expressing this particularly well. My question is, how are young people on First Nations evaluating, assessing? What is being said, what is being promised, um, the things that are being done, when at the same time they look at situations where they don't have clean drinking water, where housing needs, in many cases, needs improvement. How are they, see- how are they assessing promises with, with what they're seeing? Mm-hmm. A great question, Roy. Um, any Canadian in this country, Indigenous or not, wants the best for our youth and uh, indigenous, um, we we also um, inherited uh, quite a situation our, ourselves to this point in, in a journey. Uh, we got NHL players like Ethan Bear, uh, who I tell you, Roy, is a huge inspiration to our youth. We we got 
females, uh, males uh, in, in schools, universities, uh, trades, uh, just, just doing great, amazing things. And we lift them up because they are the spotlights to our youth, uh, to the fuel for our youth. The situation that remains is um, there is an on-reserve versus off-reserve uh, challenge. Uh, many in the uh, cities that uh, are growing up in cities, Indigenous, uh, it's very strong peer-to-peer. So uh, some of the culture is really tough to maintain. The language, uh, you know, the, the Cree, the, the Mohawk, uh, it, it's tough to continue that culture uh, when you're immersed in such a, a big multicultural uh, city. Uh, on the reserve, um, you know, the, the mold in houses, the uh, um, um, lack of, of quality water, um, it, it takes its toll. Uh, the, the most important table, Roy, for our youth is the kitchen table in all these homes. And around those kitchen tables, uh, we have many uh, that are so strong, but we also have to understand that intergenerational trauma is real. You know, the grandparents uh, who were forced to go to residential school, um, they're trying to get back their vertical lineage strength again uh, in that family, grandma to mom to daughter to granddaughter. Parents, uh, some have, some didn't go to residential school, but were raised by residential school survivors. Some of them are trying to figure out how to be strong parents again because residential school uh, took that uh, out of that vertical lineage. So our youth, Roy, um, are looking uh, to prosper in this country like everybody else. Some of them put the weight of this history on their shoulders and want to show their parents and grandparents that they can succeed. Sometimes kids in our sports teams, in our schools that are sitting there being Indigenous, uh, they, they will prosper. But when they go home, and I'm not trying to say Indigenous people are pitiful in this country, right? but what I'm saying is sometimes those Indigenous youth go home and they are the light of the family. So they have weight in their family. They got to hold too. So that's why we have to, as Canadians, empower our youth so that they can get to where we always should have been as Indigenous people in this country of Canada, where everybody should be succeeding. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.